0: Hey guys, welcome back to Recalibrate, a mindset podcast designed to help you break free from the old while pressing on to the new. Uh, As you probably know, if you are familiar with this podcast, if you've connected previously, you know that I will integrate psychology, biology, and theology, of course. It just makes better sense that way. If you're new to this channel, well, I want to welcome you, and I'm grateful and honored that you are giving me the time of day to connect and to learn. Now, I do wanna say that I've been I've been out <laughs> of the podcast realm for a little over a month now. Haven't uh, been updating as frequently as I have before. Been a little busy nonetheless. You guys are important to me. I, I love the fact that you have uh, given me a vote of confidence since the very beginning, and you take the time to write to me and encourage me. Uh, with your your positive feedback and I'm really grateful for that. So I want to say I haven't forgotten about you. (laughs) I've been thinking about you this whole time and I know that uh, many of you are connecting from all around the world. Boy, I wish, I wish, I wish I could uh, speak your language and connect with you at a greater level, but all I know is English, Spanish, and I understand a little bit of French. But I will say, welcome, 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 and bienvenidos a este podcast, si me estás escuchando, de algún país de habla hispana, te bendigo también en el nombre de Cristo. I bless you guys in the name of Jesus. So, let's get started with today's episode. When you think about February, the month of February, you know, what comes to mind is the 14th, Valentine's Day, special day. <laughs> a very special day for people who sell chocolates and flowers and plushes and stuffed animals. <laughs> that's, that's the special part of it, you know, the, the, the commercialization of it all. Now, I'm not throwing dirt on Valentine's Day and I'm not a Grinch or, or a Scrooge or anything like that. I think Valentine's Day, uh, it's important of course, but, but I really think that uh, love is something that is, uh, that we choose to share on a day-to-day basis and uh, it is not confined to a specific day. Now, we probably do expand our range of expression, you know, uh, when Valentine's Day comes around, because. You know, we go all out to show the uh, our family, our loved ones that we love them. But again, I'm not I'm not against Valentine's Day. I'm all for it. I celebrate it. I mean, I guess I celebrate it. You know, I do give gifts, small gifts. I do write cards as I did this year to my wife, to my son and to my grandkids. I did that. And I think that's special because The chocolate you eat and, um, (laughs) of course, digest. (laughs) The flowers, they wither away. But what is written on a card is something that you can pull up year after year and remember those words. And and they're they're special. And so Valentine's Day is special. Funny story is that Valentine's Day, uh, what was it, felt like on a Monday or a Tuesday or something like that. But the Friday following Valentine's Day, uh, we were having a, a gathering, a little uh, dinner celebration, Valentine's celebration on a Friday, so a few days after Valentine's, at our church. And so, of course, I stopped by the store and uh, to pick up some things, and, and I picked up some flowers. And as I was walking out of the store, a young lady that was sitting at a table selling Girl Scout cookies, and she was a Girl Scout, might have been about 14 years old, she was sitting next to her mother, and as I walked by, I, I always feel compelled to buy Girl Scout cookies. Yes, you're probably thinking that <laughs> I probably because I have a sweet tooth, yeah, that might be the case. But I felt compelled because I like to help people and so they're out there trying their best and if I can if I can put a smile on someone's face by buying a a box of cookies, a five dollar box of cookies, boy, uh, that's that's uh, inexpensive and an easy way to to impact the life. So. I went over and I picked two boxes of Girl Scout cookies, and uh, the young lady looked at me, the, the, the daughter, the Girl Scout, and she says to me, sir, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. <laughs> she said, are you in the doghouse? And I looked at her. I was kind of startled by her question, and I said, excuse me, what, what was that? Are you in the doghouse? I said, what do you mean by that? She says, are you in trouble? Did you get in trouble with your wife? And I. Really, seriously, I was startled. (laughs) I was baffled by her question. And so I looked at her and I said, well, why do you say that? And she says, well, because you have flowers. And so that's her experience. Her experience is probably watching her father bring flowers to her mother when or after they have gotten into an ugly fight. And so I looked at her and I said, no, actually, I'm not in the (laughs) doghouse as you believe. I said, today we have a special celebration in our church. And uh, I wanted to surprise my wife with some flowers. I I thought that was a noble thing to do. She says, oh, I'm so sorry. I've seen so many men picking up flowers today. And I've asked them all if they're on the doghouse. And all of them have said that they are. And I've asked them why. And they said that because they forgot about Valentine's Day. (laughs) So now they're buying uh, chocolates that are on the clearance, in the clearance section and taking flowers. And she says, and you're the first one to say that you're not in the doghouse. I said, the reason that I'm not in the doghouse, sweetheart, is because I've been cultivating this relationship for almost 15 years. And so I think that I've mastered (laughs) the art of expressing love. (laughs) And so Valentine's Day is, yes, of course, important, but nonetheless, the month of February is memorable to me for a completely different reason. Now, in order to share this with you today, I am going to have to backtrack. I'm going to have to go all the way back, all the way back to when I was about 18 years old in Monterey, Mexico. As a matter of fact, I met my wife when uh, we were about 14 years old. We were in middle school. Uh, last year in middle school, we met and, uh, and of course, you know, fell in love. The moment that I saw her, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that she would be my wife. I was a 14-year-old, a 14-year-old, and I already knew. Didn't know her name, <laughs> didn't know her name, but I already knew. Now, I wasn't um, deeply connected in a relationship with the, with the Lord uh, because you could say, well, the Holy Spirit told you. Well, no, it wasn't the Holy Spirit. I think it was just me. And I saw her, and maybe it was wishful thinking, and I thought she is going to be my wife. So fast forward four years later, at age 18, we are before a minister saying, I do. At age 18, yes, and you're probably thinking, oh, Milton, did you, uh, did you get her pregnant? Is that why you were getting married? And the answer is, no, 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 I didn't get her pregnant. We got married because we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was time for us to marry, that there was nothing really holding us back. You see, I, I was uh, an early entrepreneur. I started doing business when I was about 14 years old. I have always loved business. I have always loved entrepreneurship. And so by the age of 17, I was running a business that was providing support to some big corporations in uh, Monterey. And so I had it made financially, uh, and I was ready. There was nothing holding us back. And so I proposed. We got married two years later, and I'm going to have to kind of fast forward. Otherwise, this podcast episode would go on for hours. Fast forward at age 20. Uh, we are expecting our first son, and uh, about three or four months before uh, his birth, which he was born in January, January twenty one. Uh, before his birth, um, something happened. My wife, you know, started feeling a little bit of discomfort around uh, the uh, lower part of her arm and. And it was it was enough discomfort to see a doctor and see what was going on. There was there was some kind of a mass that was growing uh, on the inside, and although it was the size of a lemon, uh, it was or a small lime, I would say, uh, it was very uh, uncomfortable. And so, of course, the first thing that comes to mind with a very little medical knowledge was it's an abscess, and uh, you know, and there are ways to help reduce the inflammation and get rid of it, you know, without having to have any medical intervention. But nonetheless, we went to the doctor. The doctor looked at it and he said, well, you're a few months away from delivering this little boy. And, uh, and so we'd rather just wait. And, and so once, once you give birth, we'll schedule a time so you can come in and we'll do a, an outpatient surgery and uh, and simply see what it is. I'm sure it's minor. And so da- David was born uh, January 21st, 1992. The kid is 31 years old now. My pride and joy. <laughs> he was born beautiful baby, huge blessing. And so in 1992, and uh, yes, we were born. We were we were married in 1990. So 1992 he was born. And so in the month of April, which was just a few months later. She went in for surgery, a minor surgery, as I said, outpatient. And as I was sitting in the waiting room by myself, here is a 20-year-old with a newborn baby. Uh, my parents were taking care of him. I was at the hospital sitting there, and the doctor came out, the surgeon, and he says, uh, "says Milton, I have I've already removed the the mass, and uh, we are sending it to pathology. And, and of course, that was just... Uh, regular procedure right sending things off to pathology just to see what it you know what it could be or what it is what it was and but he looks at me and he says with all my years of experience I can tell you almost with uh, complete accuracy that what your wife has is Hodgkin's lymphoma and so I looked at him and I did not understand a word he said I had no idea what a lymphoma was or who Hodgkin's was and so that's you know that's when you come to find out that ignorance is not bliss you know when you don't know and you just don't know it incapacitates you and so I I asked the doctor I said what exactly is it he says well in layman terms Hodgkin's lymphoma is cancer and of course everything the whole world shook underneath my feet, and everything collapsed on me, or at least that's what it felt like, when he looked at me straight in the eyes, and he said, it's cancer. Cancer had this very, very negative connotation, very negative one. I had not met a person, not one individual, who had survived cancer. And so cancer, the word cancer was synonymous to immediate death. So everything, my whole world shook at that point in time. I couldn't even think about the blessing of having a newborn baby. That joy, the joy that I was feeling was robbed of me. It was, it was It was taken from me at that moment when the doctor looked at me and said, she has cancer. And so I looked at the doctor and I said, Doc, I said, so what do we do? He says, we need to take care of this sooner than later. And so a few weeks later, we would be visiting an oncologist and he would be getting her ready for a full round of chemotherapy. And so from that point on, Vincristin would become our closest ally. For those of you who have gone through cancer, you know that Vincristin is the medication that goes into chemotherapy to help kill cancerous lymphoma cells. And it's also used to treat leukemia. Now, as hopeful as I was and as positive of mindset I try to keep. Her chemotherapy treatments and radiation and surgeries and therapies would go on for nine straight years. There wasn't a year, there wasn't a month that would go by without having to see a doctor, without having to go through a transfusion, without having to go into a PET scan, CAT scan, MRI, you name it. When she lost her hair the first time around, not only did she lose her hair, she lost her eyebrows, her eyelashes. It was a very difficult time, especially for a woman, to have to go through that. But not only would it happen once, her hair would grow back and she would lose it again and again and again. And in, so in, in, in nine years, she went through that at least four times. Of course, after the second time, she got used to it and got creative. And so she, it no longer affected her emotionally as hard as it did at the very beginning. On the ninth year, the doctor called us in, And he wanted to speak to the two of us. As we sat there in his clinic, the oncologist, who had been treating her for nine years, very stale, very cold demeanor, no empathy, no sympathy, just very cutthroat, straightforward. He looked at us and he said, well, I need to let you know that after all these treatments that we've done and these last ones that we have done, we have come to find out that your wife is refractory. In other words, she's no longer responding to any of the treatments. Those cancerous cells are no longer responding. And her cancer has started to metastasize, meaning it's spreading like a wildfire. And there's no way of stopping it. And so I looked at him and I said, so what are you going to do? He said, nothing. There is nothing we can do. He says, as a matter of fact, there is no medication that we haven't already tried. And so there's nothing out there in science that would help kill those cells. My recommendation, he said, is that you take your wife home and let her enjoy the last few months of her life. My heart sank. And I'm sure that hers did too. I said, what do you mean? He says, at best, your wife has six more months to live. At best. And so we left the clinic with broken hearts. In complete silence, we drove away. We drove back home in complete silence. And I'll never forget that We came to a traffic light, and I turned and I looked at her as I was holding her hand and I said, sweetheart, what would you like to do with these last few months of life? You see, neither one of us were believers. We were people of faith, I would say, some faith. We were church-going people, but we really didn't have a close relationship with God. And so she looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said to me, I would like to leave this city and move to Texas so that we can offer David, our son, a better opportunity at life and spend the last six months of my life over there with you. And I said, if that's what you want, that's exactly what we will do. At the time I was leading a middle school and high school, a very large one in in the city of Monterey and I remember that I resigned from my work. I submitted my, uh, my, my—not my two weeks, but my two months. Um, we were going to stay for two more months until the school year finished, so that David could finish uh, third grade, and uh, and I could also complete the school year and not leave the uh, the school, you know, without any leadership. And so I put in my app my 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 two months notice, and at that point we would start planning you know, what we needed to do. And I recall that uh, I got in the car with my dad one day and I said, dad, let's, uh, let's drive to McAllen, Texas. And for those of you who are not from Texas, McAllen is a border city in South Texas, uh, a few minutes away from the border with Mexico. So it was uh, about a two and a half, three hour drive from the city of Monterey. My brother at the time had already moved to McAllen. So I was uh, familiar with the area because we would visit him uh, frequently. And so that day I told my dad, let's, let's drive over there so that we can, uh, I can start to survey the area and, and put in some applications and get a job over there and just get ready to move. And so as we were driving, my father and I, we were driving to my brother's house. We drove by this small little school and it was a Christian school and it had about three or four portable buildings. And so we drove by. And, uh, and came to the traffic light at the corner and, and I was driving and I turned and looked at my dad and said man I really I really like that little school you know it really catches my eye and draws my attention every time I drive by here you know as I mentioned uh, we would visit my brother frequently so I would always drive by that down that street and I would always uh, see that little school and it would always kind of catch my eye and so I said I'm really I really like that place I told my dad and and mind you I was coming from a school of uh, a total of about 3,000 students. And so it's a big private school in Mexico and uh, and I was part of the leadership there. And so I was at the time, just so that you could kind of grasp and have an idea of my age, I was 29 years old at the time, okay, 29. And so I'm driving with my dad and I say, I really like that place. My dad says, what do you like about it? I said, I don't know. Kind of, uh, <laughs> I said, it looks like Little House on the Prairie. You know, it was, it was on this big piece of land, and it was surrounded by sorghum fields, by by groves, and and a cilantro field. And it was just very, very little house on the prairie. And I said, I really like it. And so my dad says to me, so why don't you stop and pick up an application? And I said, Dad, haven't you realized that science says that it's a Christian school? And he says to me, so what? I said, Dad, come on. You're not a Christian. I'm not a Christian. We are not Christians, and he says, well, not yet. And I said, what do you mean by that? He says, not yet. The the, the traffic light was still red, okay? We're still there and having this full-blown conversation. There's this awkward silence. And then all of a sudden my dad puts his hand on my shoulder and says, hey, I had this gut feeling. I, I had this gut feeling that they're going to give you a job Not only are they going to give you a job, they're going to hire you. You're gonna start out as a teacher, but you're gonna end up leading that school to bigger and greater things. My reaction? I laughed. (laughs) I laughed and I said that is the craziest thing that I have ever heard. You know, it reminds me of the story of Abraham and Sarah. You know, they were in their latter years, they were already elderly never had any kids, and then God shows up and says, hey, I'm going to give you guys a son. And what did Sarah do? She cracked up laughing. She couldn't believe it. She couldn't see it in her heart. And so that was my same case. I laughed. We drove away, and on our way back, my dad insisted that I stop and pick up an application. And so it was a Saturday, mind you, but the gardener was there and apparently he worked for the school, so he was a custodian. And so I drove by, stopped, and I said, excuse me, sir. I said, is there any way that you could provide me with an application? And he says, you know what? I have keys to the office. Why don't you come in? I don't know where the applications are at, but I'm assuming they're in the drawers somewhere. I'll find one for you. And so he looked and looked and looked and finally found it, gave it to me. I took it with me. He gave me a business card uh, to the head of school uh, business card. And I took that with me, went home, filled it out as best as I could and uh, scanned it (laughs) back in, back in 2001. Yeah. You had to scan things like that. There was a scanner that we had. So I scanned it and submitted it via email. You know, that was what I I hotmail from my hotmail account, (laughs) hotmail back then and AOL and all that. But anyways, back in 2001, I sent that, he received it and it only took about a couple of days for him to reply. And he replied with a a very, very stale (laughs) reply, you know, and it was, uh, sure, why don't you come over for an interview uh, on this day at such and such time? And so I was excited, and so a few days later, I'm in my car driving alone to McAllen, all the way from Monterey once again, came over, drove three hours, came to my interview. I walked into his office, it was a very stale office. He just had a desk, his MacBook computer, and, uh, and he invited me to sit down. There wasn't a whole lot of emotional intelligence, <laughs> needless to say. Uh, he was very, very corporate-like, and he looked at me and he said, uh, all right, he says, well, I want you to know that we do have an opening for this coming school year. We have a math and uh, slash science slash PE coach uh, position. I said, are these uh, separate positions? He says, no. Whoever we hire is going to do all three. Fifth, sixth grade math, fifth, fifth sixth grade science, and campus coach. And I thought, okay, hey, I, I can definitely do that. He goes, okay, well, let's start our interview. And so he looks at me and he says, my first and most important question is, are you a born-again believer in Christ? I looked at him, and I said, what was that, a what? He said, you don't, you don't understand the question, do you? I said, no, I, I'm sorry, but I don't. He says, okay, our interview is over. I said, what? He says, the interview is over. I, I can't continue. If you don't understand that, there's no need for me to continue. So needless to say, I got up mortified, not only mortified, but offended in a way. Uh, I was feeling my cortisol rise. (laughs) I got up and I left. Yes, I left. I had driven three hours. Now I'm going to drive three hours back and all I got was a one minute interview. And so when I got back home, I told my dad, Dad, you really messed up. You, You said that they would hire me, that you had this gut feeling and you know what? He treated me like I was some weirdo. (laughs) He says, go back again, son. I said, no way, I'm not gonna go back again. He says, you have to. He says, I had that gut feeling. There's a reason for it, you have to go back. And so I requested a second interview. Yes, I requested one. And yes, he accepted. (laughs) So I came back. It Must have been about a week or so later sat down in his office, he looked at me, and he said, first and most important question, are you a born-again believer in Christ? And I said, that's the same question you asked me last time. He says, well, do you know what I'm referring to now? I said, no. He said, well, then our interview is over. I said, really? He says, yes, really. And so needless to say, you can only imagine how I was feeling. Well, to make a long story short, (laughs) I came back five times. Five times. Talk about persistence. Talk about not giving up. Well, let me tell you, that wasn't me. I wasn't back then the person that I am today, it was my dad. It was my dad's encouragement. It was my dad's insistence. It was my dad's vision, not mine. I didn't have that vision. I couldn't see or foresee what what God potentially had in store for me. I could not see that. But yet God gave my father a vision for his son. And my dad insisted that I come back. And every time that I came back, they always asked me, He always asked me the same question, but interestingly enough, the third and the fourth and the fifth interview, he always had more people with him. So on the fifth interview, I had made up my mind, I had resolved that if I was rejected a fifth time, I was not ever gonna go back again. Now, remember I I mentioned earlier that I had put in my two months notice so my two months were almost up. And so there I am, my fifth interview. He's got a veteran teacher. He's got a board member, a church member. And so they were waiting on this one person that was soon to arrive. And uh, she walked in. She she happened to be a teacher and a counselor and a, a woman, a really a woman of God that had been a missionary to Quito, Ecuador for 20 plus years. And she and her husband were heavily involved in the school. And so she came in, she sat down, she had this, I can't explain it, but there was something about this woman that exuded uh, wisdom, It exuded Christ-likeness. I don't know what it was, but it gave me so much peace. Her demeanor gave me so much peace. I mean, emotional intelligence mastered, you know, the love of Christ reflected in her. It it was, I can't explain it to this day. To this day, she is an important part of my life. And uh, she became a mentor of mine and a spiritual mother. And as she sat down at the table, at that round table where we were gathered, she looked at me and she said, my son. And I thought, Why is she calling me her son? I've never been treated that way by anyone, especially a stranger. She said, my son. And you know, I have to say, I have to say that when she said my son, it was almost like I could hear the voice of Christ. And it gave me a sense of peace and relief. She said, my son, what would you say is your favorite story in the Bible? Then I thought to myself, oh, here we go again. The Bible, born again. Are you this? Are you that? And I thought to myself, I've not read the Bible. I have a Bible. I haven't read it. But I recalled having gone to mass two weeks prior. And I remember that the minister, the priest, was talking about this kid, this young man that he referred to as El Hijo Pródigo. Now, I didn't know how to say this in English. I didn't know the translation. And so I looked at this woman and I said, I know the story that I like out of the Bible. I wanted to sound smart. (laughs) I didn't want to be shot down again like I had been for four uh, interviews. And so I said, I like this story, but I don't know the name in English. And she said to me, well, I know Spanish. Why don't you tell me in Spanish and I'll translate it. And I said, well, the story is called El Hijo Prodigo. And she says, oh, the prodigal son. I said, yes, the prodigal son. She says, and why do you like that story so much? I said, I don't know, I kind of relate to the guy. They all looked at each other and they chuckled. And I thought, really, that's, that's, that's rude. <laughs> why are you laughing? Why does my answer amuse you? Well, I had no idea what I was saying. Now, if you know the prodigal son's story, (laughs) the prodigal son took his father's inheritance and went and wasted it on worldly things until he found himself in the miry clay with the mud up to his waist, feeding pigs. I mean, this is a kid who grew up in a in a palace who had everything, but took his inheritance. And spent it all on the world. Lived for the world. Until he had a revelation. A moment of self-awareness. And his self-awareness was that he was in the mud. Feeding pigs. And he looked up into the heavens and he said, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned against you. Forgive me. And then he ran back home and his father was there receiving him with open arms. So that's the story of the prodigal son. That's just a a quick summary, and so when I said this to them, they kind of chuckled and they said, why? And I said, well, I kind of relate to the guy. Long story short, the interview ended, I don't know if it ended on a good note or a bad note, but it ended, and so reluctant to ever come back, I grabbed my things and I was rehearsing in my mind this thought, I will never come back again. And as I was rehearsing that in my mind, the assistant principal walked out. A tall, blonde, 40 plus year old, beautiful lady. She walked out and she said, Milton, don't leave yet. And I said, what is it? She says, I need you to know that the principal, the man that's been interviewing you, he's no longer going to be with us. He's retiring in a few months. And she says, and I'm going to take over this coming school year, so I am going to uh, become the principal. And I said, well, congratulations, that's very good. And she says, no, no, you don't understand. As I was sitting there in the conference, as I was sitting in the interview, and I was, I was listening to you speak, and I was, and I was hearing you know, your story, because I shared with them that I was moving to the valley to McAllen because my wife was dying. And all I needed was an opportunity, just a job for a year, just just a year. And in a year's time, I would get certified with public school systems to go work for them. But all I needed was a year because I was, at, th- at that time, an educator and, and a psychologist. That's all I need is a year. She says, as I was sitting there and I was listening to you, God spoke to me. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this this lady must be crazy. <laughs> She's nuts. What do you mean God speaks to her? Now, I... I'd never heard anyone say that before in my life, so that was odd. God spoke to me and I said, and what did he say? He told me that I need to hire you. I said, hire me? She said, yes. And I said, but this is a Christian school. She says, I understand that. And I am not a Christian. And she looked at me and she says, not yet. I said, but I don't read the Bible. She says, not yet. I said, what are you saying? She says, all I'm saying is that God has a plan and he's asked me to hire you and I have to be obedient. So come back in two weeks and I'll have a contract ready for you. I left that place baffled, so confused, but yet excited for an opportunity. Excited that I now had a job and that I could provide for my family. Two weeks later, I'm back at her office picking up a contract. She said, take it, read it, initial and sign it, scan it, and send it back and report to work June 1st. I said, no, 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 no. (laughs) I'm going to sign it now. I said, I don't want this lady to have second thoughts. And so I sat there. I read through everything, signed initial. I'll be honest with you. I didn't read anything at all. I just initialed and I signed. But there was something that really caught my eye, and that was the amount on the contract. In other words, how much I was going to get paid per year. And I soon realized that what I was getting paid was much less than what I was making in Mexico, and it did not make any sense. So I looked at her, and I pointed to the amount on the contract, and I asked her. I said, will this be enough support a family? And she looked at me and very nonchalantly said, oh no, no, that that is not enough. She said, but God will provide. I said, oh, here we go again. She's going to throw the God card at me every single time. She says, God will provide. And so fast forward, June 1st comes around, I report to work, my wife's health is declining, And yet we start to look for a doctor, a local oncologist and hematologist that could uh, treat her. I had uh, high hopes that there would be a doctor that had the right remedy, the right therapy, the right solution that would prolong her years. And so we went to an oncologist and he looked at her file, he looked at everything, asked us a few questions, uh, stepped out of the office, came back and said to us, there's really nothing that we can do. He said I would highly recommend that you take her home and let her enjoy the last few months of her life with you and her son. It was like deja vu. It was like it was like being in that doctor's office in Mexico all over again. Our hope was shot. Was shot. A couple of weeks later, someone invited us to their church. I didn't want to go to church. That's that's the last thing that I wanted. I didn't want some preacher telling me that God is hope that God is love, that, that God provides. I, I didn't want that. I was mad at the world. I, was, I can't say that I was mad at God, but I had lost faith. Nonetheless, this, this teacher was so insistent that we go to her church. And I was getting a little irritated. And I told my wife, I said, look, we just, we just need to go to this teacher's church. It's some kind of a Christian church that we had, of course, we had never experienced before. I said, I, I just need to go there with you and 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 David just to get her off my back. That way, she'll stop uh, insisting on a daily basis. And so Sunday came around. We walked into the church with about 500 people. I told my wife we're going to sit in the back row. I'm going to stand the whole time because I'm certain that uh, this is one of those churches with fake preachers like the ones on TV he's going to be wearing a a tan suit a gold watch and he's going to be jumping up and down screaming and hollering I said as soon as that happens we are out of there and I remember that she grabbed my hand and she said be patient perhaps God has something for me today and so I remained standing the pastor the church pastor he came up on the stage and he let us know that he was the Executive pastor, but yet he had a guest speaker. And it was a pastor by the name of Danny Johnston from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And guess what? (laughs) He was wearing a tan suit, gold watch. He was screaming and hollering and speaking in King James Version saying, glory to God, blessed be the name of the Lord. (laughs) Just like the ones on TV. And so I immediately looked over to my wife and I said, we're out of here. Let's, let, let's, let's leave. Now, it's one of these churches, one, one of these fake preachers. Let's go. She said, hold on. The preacher looked to where we were seated, all the way to the back, and he said, God is in the house today. My wife looks at me and she says, did you hear that? God is here. <laughs> I said, sweetie, come on. This is a church. I said, God is supposed to be here. Come on. <laughs> And then he looked, the preacher looked over at us again and he said, now mind you, we're in the back. There's about 500 people. He looks over and he says, God wants you to know that there's healing available for you today. My wife got so excited. She says, he's talking to me. I said, of course he's talking to you. He can see from a distance that you're not well. He can tell that you are ill. I said, that's how these people manipulate church members. But then the third thing that he said That, that was the turning point. He said, the doctors have given you a few months to live, but God, but God is going to extend your years. My knees gave out, I fell to the ground and for the rest of the service, I cried. I could not hold back the tears. I cried, and cried, and just like the Bible says about King David, and I cried until I had no more tears. All while a man came up to me, put his hand on his shoulder, and started to pray. That day our lives would change forever. That day I decided, like the prodigal son. Yes, the prodigal son, the one that I related to earlier in one of the interviews, I decided that day that I was in the miry clay, that I had mud up to my waist, that I had nowhere to go but to surrender my life to the Lord. I said, God, forgive me, for I have sinned against you. I promise from this day forward that I will follow you all the days of my life. And so that was definitely a life-altering experience. It was a a turning point in in our lives. Life would never be the same again. Well, this concludes part one. Yes, part one. (laughs) It's a little too long, so I'm dividing it into two. Uh, You'll see part two in the next few days. It will pop up on the episodes list. You don't want to miss it you want to hear how the story ends. It's actually quite moving and uh, filled with faith, hope, and lots of love. And so God bless you guys. Thank you for taking the time to connect, to listen, to learn, and to grow. Thank you so much for your time. I hope to see you around this coming episode. Leave a comment share this episode with someone who needs to hear it. God bless you guys. Love you in Christ. Bye-bye.